Welcome to a special message with Michael Anthony at CourageMatters.com. Today, we have a special guest speaker, Ravi Zacharias, who spoke live at Grace Fellowship in York, Pennsylvania, where Pastor Michael Anthony serves as the lead pastor. So hold on to your seats as Ravi Zacharias preaches from God's Word. It is my distinct pleasure to introduce a man who needs no introduction, but we're going to give him one anyway. Dr. Ravi Zacharias is the founder and president of Ravi Zacharias International Ministries. RZIM.org is their website. Dr. Zacharias has spoken all over the world for 45 years in scores of universities, notably Harvard, Dartmouth, Johns Hopkins, and Cambridge. He's addressed writers of the Peace Accord in South Africa and military officers at the Lenin Military Academy and the Center for Geopolitical Strategy in Moscow. That sounds like a heavenly Russian conspiracy to me. At the invitation of the president of Nigeria, he addressed delegates at the first annual prayer breakfast for African leaders held in Mozambique, and it goes on and on and on. Author of multiple books, the most recent, Jesus Among Secular Gods, just released, and Why Suffering in 2014. You can go to his website, of course, to learn more. Many of us know Dr. Zacharias from his public ministry, which is incredibly extensive. He's been called brilliant, an educator, a scholar, a man of compassion, and a man who has a tremendous vision for replication. That's what discipleship is about. Till you replace yourself, your job's not done. My family and I have had the privilege of getting to interact with Dr. Zacharias behind the scenes, and he was gracious enough to spend some time with us uh, about two years ago which is part of what led me to invite him here. I like to feed my flock good food. And one of the things that reveals the character of an individual is how they are behind the scenes, away from the masses. And we have had the privilege of getting a bit of a behind-the-scenes glimpse as he's been very kind to our two sons, But the word that I would use to describe Dr. Zacharias, who has, believe it or not, 10 honorary doctorates. I would take an honorary doctorate over a formal doctorate any day of the week, and I'll tell you why. It's the recognition of people who are not obligated to give you anything. To have 10 of them says quite a bit, and we should not be surprised. I have had the privilege, my family have had the privilege, if we were to use one word to describe Dr. Zacharias, we would say humble. To be a man of such incredible wisdom, to be a man of such incredible academic excellence and knowledge, to be a man who's so selfless, he often talks about his team and the men and women that he's pouring into, says a tremendous amount about a man. He is a man of God, and it's my distinct privilege and pleasure to introduce to our Grace family and now our extended family, hopefully you'll all come back, our distinguished guest today, Dr. Ravi Zacharias. Would you welcome him, please? Thank you. Thank you you very much. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thank you. Please be seated. Thank you. And the honor is really mine to be here. Thank you, Michael, very much, and your family. Here we enjoyed a nice uh, brief lunch in Atlanta a couple of years ago. Uh, we've moved our offices since you last came, I believe, uh, taken, moved to our new institute location, uh, which is a very beautiful facility where we are sort of doing some advanced cyber 
communication and uh, our Institute of Apologetics. Uh, we have our whole team uh, of uh, North America located there, not the entire team, but our North American staff primarily. It's a beautiful facility. If you're ever coming into Atlanta, please go to the website and check, us, check it out. Uh, they'll be happy to show you around. We've already held several conferences out there. Uh, and coming up in the first part of December will be uh, the conference for business people. We had one for youth. We've had one for pastors and leaders. I don't direct that work. It's directed by Vince Vitale, one of my colleagues, who was a tutor at Oxford and gave that position up along with his wife, Joe. They're both young and sharp and passionate evangelists. So pray for them as this ministry goes forward. It's 31 years in the making now, and uh, in many ways, I feel uh, my work is done. I don't know if it's finished, but it's done. And it's wonderful to see the younger ones, uh, younger voices coming up the ranks. I just want to speak and write and let the others worry about everything else. I hope that day is not far into the distant future. I have three of my colleagues here with me this weekend, and we are privileged to be traveling and to be here in York. Uh, Pastor Michael was very kind in giving me the decision as to what I should speak to you on, and rather than move into a dramatically different subject, uh, I'll just take one of the threads from yesterday and uh, try to address this as best as I can. This is one of the thorniest questions that you think about, one of the thorniest questions that I think about. In fact, if you go into a university campus open forum, uh, nine times out of 10, this question is going to come, come forward in one form or the other. It can never be addressed in one singular setting. In fact, many of the authors of the scriptures uh, broach this subject head on. You know, the, uh, there's a, there used to be a commercial years ago, which I thought was very well done. It would, uh, bring up some questions on the screen, such as, how old is the Earth? You know, what is the distance from the Earth to the Moon? And profound questions like that that have been the subjects of investigation for the best minds. Then all of a sudden, trivial questions like, do you like pizza? And so on and so forth. Then the screen goes completely dark, and as a strange melodic sound in the background, and a motorbike emerges, the silhouette of a motorbike. And all it says is this, Yamaha. <laughs> it may not be the answer, but at least it's not another question. <laughs> because we are haunted by questions. Right from the time we are little, the word why comes very easily. And sometimes it is only intended to be a nuisance, but at other times it is a question of the profoundest significance. Even our Lord at Gethsemane, while he didn't ask why, he went, to, went about it this way. If there is any other way, if there is any other way other than this, and then he paused and said, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Someone has said virtue in distress and vice in triumph has made atheists of mankind. Virtue in distress and vice in triumph has made atheists of mankind. Almost any well-known atheist, if you ask them why they turned in that direction, they will probably tell you something like this. When I was young, I lost a brother or a sister or a parent or a child. 
some such comment comes out and we can immediately see how their entire philosophical or theological framework has been shaped by that one incident. The problem is this with moving in that direction. If moving in that direction were to answer the very question you think theism does not answer, then it is understandable. But the fact of the matter is moving in that direction actually raises a myriad more questions that are not only unanswerable, but leaves the questions unjustifiable. So not only are there no answers when you deal with the problem of evil and renounce God, one wonders whether even the question is legitimate if your assumptions of a naturalistic framework, meaning all is explained by nature, nothing supernatural is needed. If that framework is brought to bear to the question, the question itself self-destructs. Let me try and illustrate that for you and see if we could at least deal with this in uh, one particular author's mind, and that is the prophet Habakkuk. Uh, it is the famed Martin Lloyd-Jones who wrote a book on Habakkuk called From Fear to Faith. And Habakkuk in these few short chapters stands before God raising these questions very directly. Jeremiah raised it. Moses raised it, Elijah raised it. Some of the best known prophets we know of and speak of have raised this question of evil and suffering. Habakkuk sort of partitions them up into at least three different categories. And so here it is from chapter one. How long, O Lord, must I call for help? But you do not listen. Or cry out to you violence, but you do not save. Why do you make me look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. There is strife and conflict abounds. Therefore, the law is paralyzed and justice never prevails. The wicked hem in the righteous so that justice is perverted. It is interesting how this remote book of a few short verses actually came to play a part even in modern times and in history. Because if you look at chapter one and verse nine, talking about the Babylonians, they all come bent on violence, their hordes advance like a desert wind. It was from that phrase, the desert wind, that the challenge took place that was called by the American uh, stopping of the Iraqi force in the 90s, calling it the desert storm. How the desert storm was going to confront the desert wind because uh, it was Saddam Hussein who saw himself in the lineage of Nebuchadnezzar and wanting to establish again those head and shoulders of gold. How long can I talk to you and you don't listen or cry out to you violence but you do not save? The law is paralyzed, justice is perverted. Does it not sound like our time? We look at those same issues today. And if I may break it into the three segments that he does, I'd like to say, take the problems first and then see what it is that God says to him, which I think is actually quite remarkable. The first question he raises is the problem of violence. Why are you allowing so much violence to happen? And when I talk to you about it, you do not seem to respond. Even driving in here, as we were coming this morning, uh, 
I was telling my colleague as he was driving me here that the news just has broken that there's been a major truck bombing in Mogadishu with nearly 200 killed and another 200 taken away in, in, with injuries. The biggest truck bombing ever. What are they doing? Why are they doing it? What do they hope to accomplish? Drive into an area where people are just going about their normal business and indiscriminately blowing up men, women, and children? Violence has become an absolute expression in our time. It is no longer an, an expression of just relativism. It has become the absolute by which people hope to stop any other counter-perspective. Uh, one of India's famous sages, Acharya Vinoba Bhave, made the comment. He said, in pre-modern times, violence was relative. In modern times, violence will become absolute. And only when you are directly affected by it do you realize how indiscriminate and how insane this kind of response is in our time. Look back over the last four centuries. I did some research on the subject because you see the Second World War was theoretically described as the war that was going to end all wars. But you go back across the last four centuries. 17th century, 3.3 million were killed in warfare. 18th in Europe alone. In 18th century in Europe, 5.2 million. In the 19th century, 5.5 million. And in the 20th century, they say 28 million. I remember giving these statistics in the Ukraine at the University of Pedagogy and Science. And the professors who were lining up the first row turned and said something to each other and I knew exactly what they were saying. 28 million in the 20th century? No way. Tens of millions more than that. Tens of millions more than that. And I'm talking about the microcosm of Europe. If you add the slaughter in Russia and the slaughter in China, it goes well into the hundreds of millions in the 20th century. It's incredible. So when you think of it, half the size of the United States or so has been obliterated in the 20th century in warfare alone. Violence. Is anything going to stop it? I made the comment once to my wife and I said it very candidly. I said, every time I pack my suitcase to head somewhere, I'm never quite sure I'm actually going to come back. This is the kind of uncertainty, whether you get onto a plane or you get into a marketplace or you're just attending a fair or a carnival or something, you never know who has other designs in mind. And so when Habakkuk cries out violence, you say to yourself, if he thought there was violence in his day, think of what he would say in our day. We all have those hinge moments in which our lives are shaped. If you were to look back and take a sheet of paper and write down what were the most turning events in your life, you'll be able to find a half a dozen very readily. For me, I look at two events that shaped my calling. One was when I was 25 years old and was invited to go to Vietnam and assist the chaplains because of the emptiness and the meaninglessness with many of the American forces that were out there, most of them having to retake the same territory again and again and losing their comrades in the process. How well I remember being just a few miles away from Mei Lai 
for many of you young people, that name will mean nothing to you. But for those who were very much in the throes of the Vietnam War, you will remember the slaughter that took place at My Lai at the hands of Lieutenant Kelly, who lost his composure over all the tragedy that had been inflicted upon them by children who'd be talking to them on the side of the road and suddenly throw a grenade into the lap of the American troops who were just stopping there to chat with them. And Cali just lost his composure and mowed down a whole lot of people. Milai became an infamous place. I was just a handful of miles away from Milai, speaking and talking about all that had happened there when my 17-year-old interpreter lost his composure in the middle of the message and put his arm out and stopped me from saying anything more. And he pleaded with the pastors. I didn't know what he was saying. But by the time he was finished, all of the pastors were at their front and on their knees. And what he was really saying to them, he told me afterwards, how much is it going to take for us to realize our country is a mess and we need to get right with God? I remember that event so well that I didn't even have to say anything. A young 17-year-old captured the imagination of the pastors and the leaders, and revival broke out in that country with that and one other setting in the city of Nha Trang, where again, this gentleman was my interpreter. But then the second hinge event for me was some years later in the 1980s, when I was visiting Poland. It was still during the throes of the so-called Cold War. You don't often see the sun in Poland in the winter. The, gray, the skies are gray. The buildings were gray. And at that time, I remember if you wanted to buy a glass of grapefruit juice, a tiny little glass like that, you'd be paying $15 for that because the shelves were barren and empty. And I'm talking about 35 years ago. And they took me to visit Auschwitz. And that changed my heart so dramatically. Again, a war zone. I was not alive during the Second World War. I did not know all the carnage until I got to Auschwitz, where at that camp alone, the Nazis were eliminating them at the rate of 12,000 every day. 12,000 every day. And the most sobering room is one where you see the little suitcases, little toothbrushes, and the clothing of children. I remember a couple of teenage gals who were in that building who stormed out of there and I took a few steps to follow wondering what had happened and they went and sat on the outside and just cried uncontrollably. There was a man standing next to me and he looked at me and he said, quite sobering, isn't it? I said, yes, sir. He said, what do you do? I said, I'm a minister. He said, you have a lot to think about. I said, I do. I said, what do you do, sir? He said, I'm a judge in the state of New York. I said, you have a lot to think about too. We both have a lot to think about and everybody has a lot to think about. Violence, how do you allow this to happen, Lord? Are you not going to do something and bring about a stop to all of this? But then he moves on to give us the root cause of some of this and that is injustice. Why do I see so much of injustice going on? Why do I see so much of lawlessness going on? And as he talks about it and, and describes it, you begin to see the power of what it is that people actually say when they think of injustice. G.K. Chesterton said it so well, and he describes our time under the smooth legal surface of our, of our society. 
There are already moving some very lawless things. We are always near the breaking point when we care for only what is legal and care nothing for what is lawful. Do you hear that? We are near the breaking point when we think of only what is legal and not what is lawful. Unless we have a moral principle about such delicate matters as marriage and murder, the whole world will become a welter of exceptions with no rules. There will be so many hard cases that everything will go soft. There'll be so many hard cases that everything will go soft. When somebody writes like this over 50 years ago, you could see what was happening in the courts of law. One philosopher of ethics said, ours is an age where ethics has become obsolete. It is superseded by science, deleted by psychology, dismissed as emotive by philosophy. It is drowned in compassion, evaporates into aesthetics, and retreats before relativism. The usual moral distinctions between good and bad are simply drowned in a maudlin emotion in which we have more sympathy for the murderer than for the murdered, for the adulterer than for the betrayed, and in which we have actually begun to believe that the real guilty party, the one who somehow caused it all, is the victim and not the perpetrator of the crime. What a muddled society. You can't open the news these last week without seeing the one person they have picked out who supposedly has harassed so many and how despicable all those assertions are true. But it is interesting, a few days ago when Hugh Hefner died, one of the editorials in the newspaper described him as an American icon. So we make an icon out of one who propagated this kind of philosophy, then we make the devil out of someone who practiced that philosophy. We are heavily at points of tension to a point where sexuality has become that buzzword in our culture, where no matter what happens, that has become the thing that everyone likes to either defend themselves in or exploit somebody else in. And we go to courts of law in order to try to resolve these, and the court asks you, what is your point of reference for even debating some of these issues? We change the laws where we don't like the discomfort of living in a lawlessness. We make that legal and then we still wonder what is lawful and what is legal. We don't know the difference between the two anymore. That's why even Habakkuk said the law is paralyzed. The law is paralyzed. You see, when God gave Moses the law, he had to not just give him one. When God gave the law first, he gave just one law, just one. In the garden, there was only one prohibition. Don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil because the day you do that, you're going to die. What did he mean? Don't play God. That's exactly the, 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 the counter perspective God was giving you and me. Don't play God. Don't become the definer of good and evil because a moral law is transcendent over us. If we are the ones who make our laws, we are ultimately going to make laws that support us and exploit the other person. And that's why it is not at all surprising that Shakespeare referred to Satan as the prince of lawyers. The prince of lawyers, the one who could take law and manipulate it in a way to make anything atrocious sound good. And you and I become victims. Why do you think Washington is such a havoc right now? Most of them are lawyers arguing with each other. 
Now, I've not got a thing against lawyers. I'm very grateful for the fact that if we need an advocate, we get one. But I am saying this, just like ministers can pervert the gospel so easily, lawyers can pervert the law as well. Ministers are meant to be guardians of the gospel. And so often, it is the ministers that betray the people. If you go into the history of heterodox views, you will find orthodoxy was abandoned not by the person in the pew, it was abandoned by the theologians and the propagators of teaching theology. And the same thing happens when you're a master at anything, you can manipulate the same thing. And so that's what is happening here. Justice is getting perverted. And when you're the victim of perversion, you see it much easier than when you're the propagator of perversion itself. All you need to do is to be victimized once. And you say, how atrocious is the legal system? My son went to the trial of a man and he came back to hear my son say this was so sad. He said, dad, I've lost confidence in our judicial process. My son was neither involved in it nor any, he was just a witness to observe because the person that was being tried, he knew. And when he found out what it is that was happening there, and he wasn't the only one, many others said it. And you say to yourself, what's happened? Socrates said justice is the firmest pillar of good government. And if the firmest pillar tends to crumble, you are indeed in trouble. Aristotle put it this way, justice alone of the virtues is thought to be another's for another's good. You hear that? Justice is a virtue that is meant to be for the other person's good because it is related to our neighbor for it does what is advantageous to another. Now the worst man is he who exercises his wickedness both towards himself and towards his friends. And the best man is not he who exercises virtue towards himself but he who exercises virtue towards another for this is a difficult task. Justice in this sense then is not part of virtue but virtue entire nor is contrary injustice a part of vice but vice entire that's how the Greeks thought of it but the Greeks fell short in knowing how to get there and I will get to that point violence injustice and thirdly evil he focuses now on the fact that good has been perverted not just the law has been perverted what is evil evil is more than sin you and I are sinners. We stumble, we make mistakes, we make wrong choices, we fall. As soon as we make it, we've know, we know we've made that blunder. And when somebody is kind enough to put their arm around us and tell us we are flawed, humility will say, you're right. That was a big mistake, that was a big blunder I made. But evil is entrenched sin to a point where it is comfortable even destroying the other person. That's why God said to Cain, if you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin crouches at the door. It desires to have you. There is a difference between you having sin, dealing with it, and sin having you and telling you not to deal with it. If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? What an offer of God. Do what is right, you will be accepted. But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at the door. Think of that imagery of a beast crouching at the door that desires to overwhelm you. Sin. 
the world has no explanation for evil to a point where even when psychiatrists choose to use the word, they are cautioned because it has moral connotations. We can call it anything. We can call it wrong. We can call it a fault. We can call it a misjudgment. We can call a lie a misremembrance. We can do all these things. But we dare not call it evil or sin because the moment you do that, you're forced to invoke not a horizontal axis but a vertical one. Because the moral law is really not human's moral law. It is the moral law given to us by God. And as I read this from Habakkuk, what is God going to say to him? And so God answers and begins in chapter 2 and verse 18. He says this, Of what value is an idol since a man has carved it, or an image that teaches lies? For he who makes it trusts in his own creation. He makes idols that cannot speak. Woe to him who says to wood, come to life, or to lifeless stone, wake up. Can it give guidance? It is covered with gold and silver. There is no breath in it, but the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. The first answer of God is, I exist. God is. Let all the earth be silent before him because he is in his holy temple. There's a difference between mere goodness and mere badness and holiness, which is ultimately the overarching umbrella under which God himself has created this world. So it's not so much that we are wrong-headed as much as we are wrong-directed. It is not so much just immorality. It is the vertical axis of giving a confrontation to the holiness of God, that significant transcendence and the separateness of God. Who shall ascend unto the hill of the Lord but he that hath clean hands and a pure heart? Holiness is something that is very difficult for us to fully grasp. That's why even when they got a glimpse of our Lord, it is fascinating to me that Moses and Elijah, the two of the men of the three, of the three people in the Old Testament for whom God was the undertaker, for whom God was the undertaker, Moses and Elijah, come onto the Mount of Transfiguration. And what is it that causes the disciples to fall on their face? It is the brilliant luminosity of our Lord himself and that's why they say we don't want to go down anymore they'd seen the splendor and peter reminds us of that when he talks to them and he says we were wit eyewitnesses to his majesty as to a light in a dark place the actuality of god in distinction to atheism this is a critical point so let me unpack it a little bit when an, when an atheist raises the problem of evil or the problem of wrong or the problem of immorality, the tragedy with that argument that it is purely a self-referencing definition. Because if there is no moral law giver, if we are the moral law givers ourselves and there's no overarching moral law giver, then there's really no absolute moral law. The ones in Mogadishu who did the killing today were obeying the moral law that they felt ought to be inflicted upon somebody else. What does the atheist say to that person? Unless there's an overarching moral law. 
See, only if there's a moral law giver is there a moral law. Only if there's a moral law is there good. Only if there's good, there is evil. If there is no moral law giver, there is no evil. There is a connection. Now somebody may say, wait a minute, we have our consensus in the West, we have evolutionary ethic. Really? Evolutionary ethic brought us here by killing the weaker ones. And now we are commanded by conscience to take care of the weakest ones. If a mother is holding a child and there's a rain of bullets coming, instinctively she will smother the baby. Why? The baby is the weaker one, cannot take care of itself. That's what the ethicists call a super erogatory act that goes beyond the call of the norm to protect the weaker and the one that cannot protect themselves. If we go so far as human beings to even protect the weak animal, which is a different in being, in kind, not just in degree, because the conscience says to you, that one cannot take care of itself. I have to be the one who will protect and take care of it. America was built on a very distinctive basis of reasoning. Hear me clearly. You go to Europe. Europe engendered all of the secular philosophies of our time. Rationalism, empiricism, existentialism, the Enlightenment, postmodernism, all of that came from Europe. You know why? For them, philosophy has always been supreme. German philosophers, French philosophers, the empiricist philosophers, Scotland or I or England or whatever, they always thought of philosophy. For America, it was not reasoning that was supreme. For America, moral reasoning was supreme. It's important we understand that. Moral reasoning was supreme. We are endowed by our creator with inalienable rights. Even Alexis de Tocqueville, the French philosopher who was a skeptic, when he wrote the book Democracy in America, after coming to America and going back to France, Tocqueville said, what makes American experiment a unique experiment is they are people of faith. It's moral reasoning that was supreme in the foundation of this nation. And now the attacks that come from postmodernism or existentialism or empiricism, whatever those isms are, they are taking away from us the fact that moral reasoning is supreme, right and wrong, good and evil. Gertrude Himmelfarb is a philosopher who's taught in Columbia University for many years. Uh, she was... Uh, Married uh, to, I believe, to Irving Crystal, who passed away. And uh, uh, Gertrude Himmelfarb is a brilliant historian of culture. In her book, Roads to Modernity, she has a surprising chapter, a surprising chapter. She's Professor Emeritus at Columbia now on what made America unique. And that entire chapter is on John Wesley. That Wesleyan preaching and the preaching in the second evangelical awakening made America really what it is today. Moral reasoning. So here's what I say to you. God is the actuality of God in distinction to atheism. If God is, our moral reasoning is vital. And our moral reasoning ought to tell us this. Jesus Christ didn't come into this world to make bad people good. He came into this world to make dead people live. Your heart and my heart needs changing. (laughs) 
It is not simply goodness and badness. It's holiness and alienation. And Roman one, Romans 1 gives you that devolution of man. And so we say to you, the actuality of God in distinction to atheism, God is. Dennis Prager, the great Jewish talk show host from the West Coast, he and I are fairly good friends now. I've done a few programs with him. He's an incredible man. Whenever any question comes on politics, I look at him and he answers it. When anything comes on theology, he looks at me and gets me to answer it. Prager was debating Jonathan Glover, the Oxford atheist. And Jonathan Glover was saying, ah, all this business about God making a difference in humanity doesn't make a difference at all. So Prager gave him this story. He said, Mr. Glover, if you're visiting Los Angeles and your car breaks down in the middle of the night and you're on a lonely, desolate street and you don't know anybody out there and you get out of your car and you open the hood to find out what's gone wrong and you hear footsteps coming behind you and you see four big burly guys coming towards you in the dead of night, would it or would it not make a difference to you if you knew they were just coming out of a Bible study? This is Dennis Prager raising that question, and Glover gave a surrendering smile. He said, I suppose it would. <laughs> he said, then don't say it doesn't make a difference. It does. It does. We were in Iraq recently where a man had admitted to them doing some horrible things, and as he sat in a pile of garbage cans and wept over what he had just done, what happened to him was remarkable coming from an Islamic background and doing all the things that he'd done for his ideology, he wept and he said, I fell asleep in this garbage pile of garbage cans and Jesus came to me in a dream repeatedly and repeatedly and repeatedly. I was getting angry. But finally he surrendered his life to Christ. He was our driver for a better part of that trip out there. He works with Samaritan's Purse now. That's building hospitals there to bind the broken and bind the wounded from killing people to healing people. Does it make a difference that God exists and has worked in your life? The actuality of God. Number two, the eventuality of his working. That comes in chapter two, verses uh, two and following. Write down the revelation and make it plain on tablets so that a herald may run with it. For the revelation awaits an appointed time. It speaks of the end and will not prove false. Though it linger, wait for it. It'll certainly be done. It will, it will certainly come and will not delay. See, he is puffed up. His desires are not right, right, upright, but the righteous will live by his faith. Technically, that verse should really be translated, the righteous will live by his faithfulness. The Hebrews didn't have a word for faith. The Greeks did. The Hebrews talked about his faithfulness. The Greeks had the idea of faith, but they had no transcendent being in which to have faith. The Hebrews did have the concept of faith, but it was the word of trust. And faithfulness was your calling to be faithful to that trust and honor he who is going to do it. Wait for it at the appointed time. Not every prayer is answered immediately because not everything that is True is immediate. You know, people often come to me and say, why doesn't God heal me of what, what's happening in my body? It's a good question. I've wrestled with that question myself for years. But let me ask you this. If today whatever is ailing you, you're completely healed of, is that going to be the last miracle you're going to ask for? No. 
Tomorrow something else will happen. Day after tomorrow something else will happen. Life that is interconnected loves and where there is love there is going to be pain. Where there is love there is going to be pain either through separation or through betrayal or whatever happens. So God gives us just enough to keep on trusting in him but withholds enough to let us know that we are not God. You see, if you have a heartache, God can do one of two things. He can take away the source of the heartache or he can change the ache in the heart to be able to face whatever it is you're facing. He either removes that source or gives you the courage and gives you the will because life is not lived by sheer reason alone. It is also lived by trust and faith. Imagine a one-year-old or a two-year-old child being taken to be jabbed by the doctor. And that child grows up and when that child is three years old, he says to a friend, you know, I don't understand my mom. She took me to this doctor and he puts these terrible things into my arm and she pays him for it. And then the disease comes years later and hits everybody else but that child and he says, now I know why my mom was willing to inflict that pain on me because had that pain not been inflicted, today a deeper and a greater pain would come. We are as children walking through the corridors of time trying to understand everything complex. The revelation awaits an appointed time. Wait for it and he who runs will read it but it will happen, it'll be sure. The just shall live by his faithfulness. The most devout saints I have ever seen are those who have endured much and whose faith has remained unshaken. Those who have endured much and his faith and the faith has remained unshaken. Think of Annie Johnston Flint, was orphaned early in life, born Annie Johnston, raised by the Flint family. As time went on, was smitten by rheumatoid arthritis, then cancer, then blindness, then incontinence. She lay in bed for so many years and her biographer says towards the end, he saw her with eight cushions around her body, cushioning the sores from being in bed so long. Orphan, blind, cancerous, incontinent. And she writes, he giveth more grace when the burdens grow greater. He sendeth more strength when the labors increase. To added affliction, he addeth his mercy. To multiplied trials, has multiplied peace. When we have exhausted our store of endurance, when our strength has failed ere the days half done, when we reach the end of our hoarded resources, our Father's full giving has only begun. His love has no limit. His grace has no measure. His power has no boundaries known unto men. For out of his infinite riches in Jesus, he giveth and giveth and giveth again. Amazing him from one who suffered much and endured much, but remained faithful to the end. I wouldn't be surprised if many of you sitting here are facing a huge heartache or living with a huge heartache. Ask him to take that ache away and to give you a heart that can live with whatever it is that torments you. And I'll tell you why as I bring this to a close. The actuality of God, the eventuality of his working, and lastly, the eternality of his perspective the eternality of his perspective. Because as you bring this thing to a close, in the end he says this, I heard and my heart pounded, my lips quivered at the sound. And that is Habakkuk 3, 
uh, verses 16 and onwards. I heard and my heart pounded, my lips quivered at the sound, decay crept into my bones and my legs trembled. Yet I will wait patiently for the day of calamity to come on the nation invading us. Though the fig tree does not bud and there are no grapes on the vines, though their olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Savior. The sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He enables me to go on to the heights. He enables you to take at that look of time from eternity's perspective and the whole thing fits together in a way it would never fit together here. The famed coach Lou Little talked about the time that he had a young football player at college who was a good player but he was never a front liner. He was always a backup guy. But he would see this young lad often have his father visit him and his father's arm would be in his as he would walk around and show them all the buildings. And Lou Little said, I often wanted to go and meet the dad, but it seemed like the father and son had such a close relationship, I never wanted to interfere, interfere with it. Till one day the boy came to me and said, Coach, my father has passed away. I need to go for his funeral. And the coach said, yes, you may go. He said, I won't be here for the Sunday game. He said, that's fine. He came back after the funeral and he went to the coach. He said, I'm asking you for something I've never asked you before. Can I play the game next Saturday? The coach said, no, you're not number one. The number one man will be doing an injustice to him. He said, coach, put me on the field for just this one game. If I'm not the best player on the field, you can put me out. He put him in there. He was by far the star of the game. And as he came out, the coach put his arm around him and said, you did that for your father, didn't you? He said, yes, coach, but I'll tell you why. He said, my dad was blind. And today was the first time he was going to be able to see me play. Today was the first time he was going to be able to see me play. There's a glimpse from eternity that will transcend everything in time. If you go to Cyprus today, Lazarus, who was raised from the dead by Jesus from Bethany, became the bishop in Cyprus in Larnaca. His grave is outside the church. It's the briefest epitaph with the most profound implications. It says this, Lazarus, Bishop of Larnaca, twice dead, friend of Jesus. Twice dead, friend of Jesus. I tell you what, the second time he was facing death, I can assure you he wasn't afraid because he'd already been there and he knew the one who was going to let him out. When you know the resurrected power of our, the resurrecting power of our Lord, you know he will take you to set your feet like the feet of a deer, hind's feet on high places, said Hannah Hernard in her book. To get the perspective you will never get here. It is impossible to get it here because we are strapped by time and space. When we are in eternity with the Lord, those two restrictions are no longer there. You'll be seeing it through the keyhole of eternity and the whole art gallery comes to life at that moment. Evil, injustice, violence. I want to bring it together with a close in this thought. The very three things Jesus faced on Calvary. Violence, injustice, evil. The very three things that our Savior faced on Calvary. And think about it, when it was over with, 
in the most cruelest infliction of pain and violence by the powers that were there at that time. And Pilate said, don't you know I have the power to release you? That was the most hollow statement to have ever been made. Jesus said, you don't have any power except that which is given to you by my Father. And he went and said on the cross, it is finished. But I want you to put those words and juxtapose them with Jesus as he's walking to Calvary and the women are weeping for him. And what does he say? Don't weep for me. Don't weep for me. Weep for yourselves and your children. The Lord who said that is the same Lord who stood in front of Lazarus' tomb and wept. He knew we live with pain and separation. Even though he knew he was the one to conquer that and bring us relief. And so what is my answer to you? The Lord Jesus in your life and in your heart helps you to see evil, injustice, and violence through his eyes and know the only source that can conquer it. It is with his empowerment and his calling to live your life in this world, to go to the hill called Calvary where the burdens fall off and you see the three shining ones, the one who puts the robe on you, the next one who puts the mark on you, and the third one who gives you a road map to walk through life. That's the calling you and I have. But it all happens through the wanderings of the slough of despond and vanity fair and all, and you come to that hill called Calvary, and the greatest burden you carry falls off. Then the new robe, then the mark, and then the road map to help you walk through this to the eternal city. How long shall I cry to you? The same man says, he set my feet like the feet of a deer, like a hind's feet on high places. The sovereign Lord is my strength. You've been listening to the Michael Anthony Bible Teaching Podcast. We'd love to hear how this message impacted you. To share your story, visit CourageMatters.com and click on the Your Story tab. If you enjoyed this message, you'll love Michael Anthony's Courage Matters podcast, where he focuses on leadership, relationships, and world events. To learn more, visit CourageMatters.com. In the meantime, keep looking up. There's no place else worth looking.